Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged. Today we're taking a slightly different format as I'm joined by three guests from across what you might call the sustainable finance industry, uh, here to discuss what financial institutions can and should do to target climate change. Um, We all know, uh, we're familiar with how urgent the climate change agenda is, and this was certainly brought into sharp focus at the Climate Summit COP26 in Glasgow towards the end of last year, which kind of brought together politicians, activists, business leaders um, to put this topic back on the world's agenda, really. Um, As well as doing that, I think it also demonstrated how much progress some countries and industries still need to make in order to sort of make a, a real and measurable difference to emissions output. Uh, now, the financial sector has perhaps been sort of slower than some industries to step up and play its part. I think that's fair to say. But with open banking having been implemented in sort of so many countries now, what has been termed sustainable finance has emerged as a sort of growing area, if you like. At the same time, we're seeing kind of growing interest from consumers to understand perhaps their, the carbon footprint of their purchases and lifestyles. So um, let's bring in my guests. I know we've got plenty to talk about. Uh, so I will give a very brief introduction uh, to each of them in turn, and then and then we'll come to you for a bit more on, on your own backgrounds. So I'm joined by Simon Redfern, who is uh, founder of the Open Bank Project. Uh, we've also got Gavin Starks with us. He's founder of icebreaker1.org and is co-chair of the Open Banking Standard, as well as founding CEO of the Open Data Institute. And finally, Steve Williams, who is a research group leader at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam in Germany and a postdoctoral research fellow at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden. So welcome, three of you, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Simon, let's come to you first. Can you tell us a bit more about your your background and and kind of what you're hoping to explore a bit more in in today's discussion, really? Yeah, Okay. So thanks, Ellie. My background, basically kind of geek, software engineer, uh, also interested in music, uh, but been programming for the last, I don't know, 30 years or so. And I guess in the yeah in around 2006 I was living in New Zealand at the time and I was or yeah 2004 2006 I was I was living in New Zealand and became interested in more financial transparency around uh, bank accounts uh, thinking that that could be a good way to uh, tackle financial crime uh, corruption fraud that kind of thing came to Berlin 2006 and yeah started to develop these ideas about what would be later uh, come to be known as open banking yeah and uh, in 2010 i gave a talk at an eu it conference uh, here in berlin and said you know let's let's open up financial data uh, for greater scrutiny and greater innovation right so using oauth and json uh, restful apis all, all, all this good stuff yeah, so then we started building the soft, started building some open source software in 2011. In 2013, we were invited or won a place in the FinTech Innovation Lab in London. And later that year, we 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 got uh, 
we were hosted for for a while at the Open Data Institute. That's where I met uh, Gavin and the, the team at Open Data Institute. They put us in touch with uh, the Treasury, the UK Treasury, and I said, "Come on, let's do open banking." And so that's where the whole uh, UK open banking thing started. And uh, so yeah, I have a long history of in a well, long interest in open source, believing it's like a force for, for sustainable good, a social force for sustainable good. Gavin actually mentioned to me when uh, when I was starting to think about this and stuff, this, 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 this concept of scope one, two, and three emissions, right? And it's still a little bit of a mystery to me exactly how you compartmentalize that, but it would make sense to have a simple RESTful API with scope one, two, and three emissions as a, as a JSON structure, uh, basically as a little data blobs. And banks could, uh, could apply that to their financial products. Not sure quite how they'd work it out. But, you know, when you get a current account from a bank, that's going to have an emissions cost, right? Like how the bank is, you know, servicing its technology and its people and its transport and all the rest of it. And then, you know, we could also apply that approach to like all sorts of products, right? We see that with uh, transport, uh, you know, with air travel and I think train travel. I think Google is doing that at the moment. So just bringing this kind of transparency of uh, emissions to, to to products, right? So so when you buy, uh, I don't know, a new synthesizer or mixing desk or a bicycle, you know, what's the what are the emission costs of that? You know, uh, when you when when you buy a loaf of bread from a supermarket, you know, you by now we pretty much know if there's salt and sugar in it, but what 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 are the emission costs? That's my my take on it. Yeah, so, so like a nutritional breakdown, you, which you get on food packaging, but it applies to sort of financial products. That's that's kind of a nice way of seeing it, I think. And and thanks, Simon, for that introduction. And let's let's bring you in, Gavin, because um, Simon mentioned how you'd come to know each other. So can you tell us more about about your own background and also Icebreaker One? Certainly. Uh, so my name is Gavin Starks. I co-founded the Open uh, Banking Standards and co-chaired it. Uh, back in 2015, uh, while I was still uh, running the Open Data Institute, which I'd helped to set up uh, and ran for four years. Uh, prior to that, I set up an environmental data company called Amy, where we aggregated all the ways of um, calculating the carbon footprint of things and put them behind a common open API. Uh, so we made it very trivial for people to calculate the footprint. But the challenge, uh, I suppose, there was that even though there's a, a moral imperative to calculate the environmental impact of what we do, there wasn't really a business rationale to that. You might argue, yes, of course there is. But from a day-to-day business perspective, it's um, something that needs to get codified into both regulation and policy and then to, into ultimately into business as usual. So what we've been doing um, over the last few years has been combining those three initiatives, both the uh, work we did at Amy, plus the work we did at the Open Data Institute, plus the work of Open Banking, into this new nonprofit called Icebreaker One. And our role here is to try and make data work harder to deliver net zero, and very specifically helping decision makers uh, make the right uh, or give them the information effectively to mandate net zero. So they can both mandate it, measure it, and act upon the data flows that enable net zero. The mechanism to do that uh, requires a mixture of open data, 
which is data that anyone can use for any purpose for free, and what we call shared data, which is usually commercial data that is restricted in some ways. And one of the big challenges here is if you go to an organization and say, we want to know the carbon footprint of your whatever it is, car, building, etc., that immediately gets into commercially sensitive information, whether it's uh, material consumption or energy usage or, or issues related to supply chain and so on. It, it's immediately a tough question. Uh, and we haven't built fluid data infrastructure to enable data sharing at scale. However, we've got a blueprint for this now, which Open Banking led the uh, charge upon. And over the last couple of years, we've built the equivalent of Open Banking in the energy sector. It's called Open Energy. Um, we've been working with government and industry to get everybody together to work out how we're going to enable this data flow uh, to run more effectively. Uh, and I think here the, the opportunity is that every single kilowatt or every single uh, unit of energy that's consumed should have a carbon value with it. And that information needs to be av available to everybody in a very diverse um, value chain here. The data value chain includes both operational people, includes financial sector, includes the reporting uh, requirements. There's hundreds of reporting requirements uh, coming around ESG reporting and so on, but also right the way through to risk managers, people looking at scenario analysis, uh, people looking at disclosure and so on. So I think here that there's a huge number of users for information that we can start to make available in a way that hasn't really been done before. And the, the combination of that plus other data flows from sensors, from Earth observation and satellite data changes the game a bit around how we're going to look at and examine the environmental impact of our investments. So we want to make this financially relevant. How, how do, what does climate finance, what does net zero finance actually mean and how do we instrument it? Thanks, Gavin. I think some really interesting points we can definitely come on to discuss a bit more. Steve, I want to hear from you about your own background and, and sort of some of the projects you've worked on. Um, Simon's already um, talked about you in glowing terms. So, um, Steve. Great. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. And yes, yeah, so uh, my name's uh, Steve Williams, based in uh, Berlin. And it's, it's interesting listening to both uh, Simon and Gavin talk. I've got I think like a lot of people these days, sort of a couple of different careers uh, that are sort of coming together in this conversation. My, my first career starting back in the 90s was very much focused around data analytics, uh, reporting, financial reporting, uh, worked in a couple of different startups and then ended up for one reason or another working at small companies that get, kept getting acquired by bigger and bigger companies until it finally got acquired by uh, SAP, a very large German company that has a lot of financial reporting software. So I was involved a lot in developing that, looking at data standards. Since it was a commercial company, a publicly traded company, we had an interesting relationship with open data and open source, sort of liking the general concept, but in a lot of ways competing with open source for a lot of our client, with a, for a lot of our uh, corporate deals. But we did look at supporting open access to data in different ways, for example, by partnering with groups like uh, Transparency International, uh, which works more on having a global uh, corruption index uh, for government. So they're looking much more at sort of tracing what World Bank payments are coming in, what is that being used for, looking at offshore money flows. So not really from a sustainability lens, but more from a financial transparency side. Um, but then had a bit of a transition in the mid-2000s, uh, moving into the corporate social responsibility team, um, in, in, in still in the software sector, 
But instead of selling the reporting software, my rule was to give that away to NGOs around the world um, so that they could use it for doing board of directors reporting, reporting on their own financial transactions, doing impact assessments, and really kind of using that data. And so really focused on evaluation and impact evaluation at an individual organization level. But I, I really saw that one of the challenges, and this is kind of linking back to, to this topic, is while a lot of groups are doing great work uh, on, for example, uh, the challenge of violence against women or child poverty or, or climate reduction, they're all having limited success because they're all working independently on a specific slice of, of, of a problem. And as both Simon and Gavin have alluded to, these issues are really quite broad. So for example, if you think about energy, people may think that energy means coal plants and pipelines and power transmission lines, but energy is also food, how you cook your food. Cook your, cook your food. It's uh, transport, how you get to work. Uh, it's home heating, how you heat your home. So energy moves into food systems, transportation systems, housing systems. So I got a lot more interested in how do these systems interact and change? Uh, so for the past 10 years or so, I've been looking at that more as a researcher and focusing on energy systems transition. So how do systems themselves change and how do we change the systems that we have in a more sustainable direction? So I've been researching that in Canada and Germany and Sweden, which are all quite similar in some ways, but quite different in, in other ways. So my connection to the financial side, I'm not a financial expert. I'm not a banking expert. But the role of financials, uh, the finance sector in these broader energy systems is incredibly important at really different levels, at the level of whether it's how are financial institutions supporting energy transition by funding and supporting renewables, how are they hindering transition by continuing to fund new coal, um, uh, coal mine development, new pipeline development, and, and, and so on but also at a, at a very micro level. Um, there's a lot of uh, discussion about uh, justice in energy transitions, uh, who wins and who loses, what are the impact on uh, jobs. Uh, in the UK right now, there's a lot of discussion about uh, the coming uh, rise in energy prices, and uh, which is obviously going to affect poor people more than, than wealthy people. So that's kind of my interest in, in, in this uh, topic here and how these things come together. What role do, does the finance sector broadly play uh, in, in energy uh, transition? Um, and um, yeah, and I guess, as, as Simon mentioned, we also have that, that in common, but also looking at how does sustainability and environmentalism show up in uh, performing live techno in Berlin, which is a whole <laughs> other uh, podcast conversation that we could, uh, we could talk about another time or, or, or get into. Yeah, I think that's that's the follow up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Late night, late night open banking expo podcast. Um, well, look, there's there's loads we we can talk about, as you say, and and I think something that um, Gavin you mentioned is this idea that there was perhaps a moral imperative for. for for the kind of the financial industry and sector to be to be doing something about um, some of these climate and environmental and social issues but now actually there's this sort of business imperative and alongside that we've we've opened up all this this data and and there's sort of um an open banking has has really kind of perhaps um yeah widened what what can be what can be achieved and and so it's all kind of come together perhaps at the same time as as you know the climate agenda has has shifted and become that much more urgent so um 
Simon, look, let's go let's go back to you for now. Do, do you agree that um, well, perhaps you can build on this idea of, of there now being this this business imperative and and if so, um, how do you think that that's going to kind of shape um, the, the finance sector, if you like, for, for the years to come? So I think the whole point of open banking, right, and and this was kind of, I expose my aim as in also to make it an open source thing and be very sort of open about all the ideas. The whole whole point is that we now, banks now have this infrastructure in place, right? It's... It's uh, legislated in obviously UK and Europe, right? But also, you know, around the world, you know, uh, Mexico, uh, whole 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 load of countries are, are doing open banking, right? So the banks have this infrastructure there, so they can't really complain anymore about, oh, you know, we can't release this data. I'd be really interested to uh, come back to Gavin about what he was saying about this, yeah, these commercial limitations and stuff I'd be really interested to hear about that but but I think we now have a we now have an infrastructure in in the sense that people are used to exposing APIs and consuming APIs so yeah you know I uh, obviously I gave this talk uh, at the open banking expo back in November I just did a blog blog post about it actually uh, also about my trip up to cop 26 for the people summit for for, for, a, for a day so I got put some ideas there. Yeah, I think it's going to come from two directions, right? It's going to come from concerned cons- consumers who, you know, who who are, you know, don't want their pension fund or whatever investing in in fo- fossil fuels. It's going to come uh, from from that kind of direction, and then it's also going to come from the like from the kind of investors' side looking at risk. And if we, if we can encourage this this kind of uh, this sharing of this this data, this scope one two three or or some of that, right? That would be, you know, we've got the we've got the infrastructure to do it, the technical infrastructure. Whether we've got the like legal ability to do it and stuff, that's another matter. But maybe Gavin can answer that question a bit. Yes, I think, um, Gavin, because I know, Simon, you mentioned uh, sort of at the, the very start about this, these scope one, two, three emissions and perhaps applying these to APIs. So, Gavin, can you give us a little bit more information about w- what we're talking about when we're talking about scope one, two, three emissions and, and uh, perhaps respond to what Simon's just said? Sure. I think it's worth taking a bit of a step back here. Green isn't something or climate isn't something we see as being distinct, a distinct category. We see it as being part of finance, uh, and uh, McKinsey's just announced a, or launched a report that says that we're going to need an investment of nine trillion dollars per annum uh, to deliver a global net zero transition, which is a bit more than I was expecting. But it was broadly aligned. We see that we saw uh, uh, we saw at COP uh, GFANS announcing you know, one hundred and fifty trillion dollars worth of assets now have to be aligned with the Paris Agreement. Now we can argue about what that translates into the the key thing here is we the total amount we spend on infrastructure it is um in the order of magnitude of a few trillion per annum so we're now just saying that all of that needs to be net zero so the question then isn't so much um are we going to be investing in net zero solutions it's how are we going to prove that we are Uh, and who gets sued if they don't who gets sued if they um claim uh, something that is, is net zero that isn't. Uh, and we've seen Client Earth, I think in Greenpeace just the other week, 
sue the UK government. Uh, we've got a legally binding target of hitting net zero by 2050 in this country. Uh, a lot of that has to be done by 2030 because it's infrastructure. Uh, and you, we've got, va- we, we, we're going to be electrifying our uh, transport infrastructure over the next eight years. It's no time at all in corporate uh, sense. So when, we, when you look at this through the, the lens of financial incentives that must drive uh, the um, uh, money towards uh, net zero solutions, they're going to want guarantees that the things that they're investing in are actually going to deliver net zero. And the only way of doing that is to deliver the reporting back that proves that that is the case. So that opens up really systemic questions. There's dozens of different frameworks and taxonomies uh, that are being used for um, exploring and examining and modeling the green economy. Um, And we're looking to create tens of thousands of jobs in the UK uh, around our uh, net zero ambitions if not hundreds of thousands. So this isn't just a, a kind of edge case, I suppose, as, as my key point. This is something that's right at the heart of our economic development. And over uh, the last couple of years, I've been part of a thing called the Climate Financial Risk Forum, which is run by the Financial Conduct Authority, the PRA, um, and the Bank of England, that are looking to drive best practice, helping make sure firms can manage the risks arriving from climate change and take advantage of opportunities that benefit consumers and deliver net zero. So the question of the, there is how? How do we measure that? So bringing that back to the, the context of, well, what does that translate into? So you've got all these different tiers. You've got frameworks and then you've got um, greenhouse gas reporting standards. And then within that, you've got other layers of information. So scope one emissions, scope two emissions are basically about your energy consumption as an organization but even as a small company if you're using a serviced office space right now it's really hard to get hold of your individual energy consumption because quite often that's amortized into the building energy so you, you don't actually have much agency over that uh, let alone the ability to to measure it so over the last you know decades there's a whole uh, industry around uh, carbon footprinting of organizations and there's a huge amount of investment running now towards software as a service type solutions for carbon accounting now having built one of those 10 15 years ago uh, and we raised a you know chunk of uh, capital from Amadeus and Union Square and uh, O'Reilly uh, to to build that the the market wasn't ready uh, and, and then the financial crisis you know distracted everybody for a decade but that is now back full force so I think what we're seeing now is the mandating at policy level of um, instruments like uh, TCFD, um, which is uh, climate financial uh, reporting uh, frameworks, which are going to start putting pressure downstream on, well, how credible is inf- this information? Where do we get it from? Actually, we need it from everywhere. There's a context there of within these scopes, the scope three emissions, which are supply chain. Uh, and that's historically been intractable because it involves tracing data through entire supply chains and there it just you immediately hit all of the blockers you might imagine about corporate confidentiality around intellectual property uh, and and so on so here what we are trying to do is bring the learning from open banking to say how can you share sensitive information in open banking's case it's your personal bank statements it may be your energy bill it may be your, as a company, it may be your supplier ledger, right? So 
the the questions there that we're able to ask and then use that framework to unlock access to the data without it being completely free and open, but in like enabling, if you like, the, the data to flow to the right actors, whether those, those are auditors, uh, whether those are other people trying to sell low-carbon technologies when you're looking at, you know, where do we invest? That's the opportunity here, is to help channel the trillions of dollars that are going to be flowing in globally to the net zero agenda to to dem- demonstrable uh, net zero. And I think there, just to kind of close out on that, if you imagine a decision as a decision maker, you know, a funder, a procurement officer, um, an investor, if you could mandate net zero and continuously measure pro- progress and then act to adapt your incentives during the design stage, the construction phase, the operational stages and decommissioning stage of the infrastructure, then we might have a hope of getting to net zero. And, and I think the, the risk is if we don't do that, then we probably won't hit net zero because the incentives are currently misaligned. Steve, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, on what Gavin's just said there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really interesting conversation. And I think maybe one of the ways that I approach that is, so coming from a Canadian context, it's kind of an interesting case where generally a lot of people in Canada and even in the energy sector will say and, and agree with this idea that we need massive investment, we need to transition and so on. But it always comes back to where we are today. And I think one of the things that's quite different between uh, Canada and a lot of the EU countries uh, where a lot of sustainability conversations t- are, are much more advanced is that Canada is still very much an energy producer and gets a lot of its economic benefit and a lot of its GDP and a lot of jobs from that sector. So we have a bit of this mismatch of agreeing on what the future should look like, but knowing where the, the, the revenue and the jobs are today and not really seeing a bridge between those. So I think this is where some of the, the, the data and the openness and the transparency could really help. So just as, as a micro example, just uh, this week, the uh, Parliamentary bu- uh, Budget Office uh, in Canada released a report on the cost of cleaning up orphan wells. Uh, and these are oil wells that have been drilled already, but have been abandoned by companies for, for various reasons. And they're just sitting there in the prairies w- with nothing happening to them. And they need to be cleaned up because there's toxic chemicals, they're leaking into the groundwater, all those kind of things. So they estimated the cost of cleaning that up is over a billion dollars. And that does not include the cost of pipelines, energy infrastructure. And it also does not include over 7,000 wells that are classified as abandoned, but not yet orphaned. Um, so the, the, the actual cost is going to be a lot bigger than that. But companies have only set aside $237 million in security deposits to do that, even though they've received almost $2 billion from the federal government. So you don't need to be an energy expert to say, okay, these numbers, $1 billion versus 237 okay, that's a mismatch. And where did that $2 billion go? Um, we know what companies received them, but we didn't know where, where that money was spent on. So that's just kind of a micro example of where the transparency could actually help. And, that, and that's, that's very interesting because that's, that's my money. I'm a Canadian citizen. <laughs> so I want to know where that money goes. Uh, and unfortunately, I, as a Canadian citizen, I am also the co-owner of a pipeline because the federal government bought an energy pipeline. So there's... One of the things that really interests me about this conversation and thinking about the transition is how do we work with whole systems? 
with, um, like uh, Gavin mentioned, the jobs there. So how do we work with unions, with installers, with uh, property developers um, to think about what, where are those jobs going to go? And also recognizing that in a Canadian context, we have, depending on the estimates, between 250,000 to maybe 750,000 people that are, that, whose jobs are reliant on the current very unsustainable energy system. Uh, and not also very much uh, to, to a lesser degree in Germany, where there's still quite a bit of uh, coal development. So um, what do we do? H how do we transition? We can't just flip a switch to say, okay, you're now all web developers, or you're now all solar panel installers. Um, and interestingly, in, in, in California right now, it's uh, a, a union uh, job at, a, at the energy utilities pay roughly $90,000 a year working at, for example, a natural gas utility. And the average solar panel installer makes $54,000 a year. Um, and because uh, a, a lot of the utilities are unionized and, and the green installers are not. So I, I, I'm not, and, and just to be clear, I'm not saying this, I, I'm not saying that green jobs are worse than, uh, th than non-green jobs. I'm just trying to pull us back to the sy systemic nature of this is that you've got a lot of entrenched interests that right now, or at least for the next quarter, their interest is in maintaining things as they are. Going beyond one quarter, that becomes much less of the case because you're seeing, uh, Gavin mentioned risk, and we're seeing that a lot now in Canada where institutional investments are leaving Canada. Massive insurance companies and reinsurance companies are now refusing to insure some of these big capital investments. So, what I find fascinating is you have these different things colliding. And I think what from a from a energy industry side, what I see is a, a lot of difficulty within those companies of trying to understand the different timelines that are kind of intersecting, where their their bonus is based on what happens this quarter. Um, and but but election cycles are at a four-year cycle. And institutional investors are at a different cycle and cops are at a different cycle. And I found from my conversation with energy industry, they're having a difficult time rationalizing, in integrating those, those, those different uh, time cycles. Um, so it's, um, and especially for publicly traded companies that are reliant on, they're not necessarily Canadian companies anymore. They're owned by institutional funds in New York, Singapore, London, Dubai, Hong Kong, wherever that they're reliant on what decisions are being made outside Canada, even though they're technically a Canadian company. Yeah, there's going to be like a carbon capital flight, isn't there? Well, that, that, that's already happening, right? It's, it's already, it's already um, in flight. So there's a the idea here called stranded assets. So the, if you own a coal mine right now, it's a stranded asset. You should, you should have done that a long time ago. But I think the, the compound challenges that we face here are, one, you know, from a, a human point of view, from a practical point of view, we just can't, we can't just switch off all of the fossil fuels overnight because then, you know, you 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 create a lot of inequity in the world, um, and so there's a, this idea of a just transition. It's like how do you go from point A to point B without um, too negatively affecting certain parts of the ecosystem and and people? Ultimately, this comes down to people. Um, the challenge with that. Is and, and not to reference, uh, well, not to make too light of it, but if uh, if you've seen Don't Look Up, uh, the film, um, 
is we, we don't have time, right? So the, the challenge is how do we drive a scale of investments and incentivize that investment and remunerate the finances around that for pension funds, for chief executives and so on, so that we do see this transition happening. And we're talking about a scale of investment here, which is like a combination of the Marshall Plan plus the Apollo mission plus the Manhattan Project, pretty much per annum for the next 20, 30 years, right? So this is not a small-scale problem. So, of course, the financial structures we've got set up right now are not incentivized to, to think long-term by definition. So there are some structural challenges there. Now, what is happening, though, is that those systems and the regulatory instruments are moving. The question is, are they moving quickly enough? And my related question to that is, as they move, are we actually fixing fixing the problem? Uh, there was a headline I was looking at yesterday of carbon sequestration plant. I won't name the company because I'm, I think it's fairly immaterial, actually, but it's one of the large oil and gas companies that was producing more emissions than it was sequestering by a substantial amount, by the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of vehicles. You know, uh, So... Now, there's a lot of investment flowing to, like, just panic. Can we fix this problem? Can we fix this problem with money? Well, maybe, but we have to fix the right problems with the right solutions. It's not just a question of, well, we're investing X billion in low-carbon technologies. Those low-carbon technologies are fantastic. An increment from where we are today is a good thing, but does it solve the problem? No, and I think this, the harsh reality in the middle of this is as we decarbonize our energy supply, as we move to renewables, you know, at, at what stage do we really change manufacturing processes? How do we change the built world? How do we change our uh, transport behaviors and so on? If we're going to take another, if we're going to take a bill, there's about a billion cars on the roads globally today. So we're going to replace all of those billion cars with electric vehicles. So firstly, there's the resource cost of that. Now, is the resource cost of building another billion cars actually, how do we uh, manage just the the offsetting, if you like, the balancing out of of that? Uh, And then we've got to power them. So building the infrastructure to provide energy to a billion vehicles plus the construction of a billion vehicles. So to me, the, the question here is do we need a billion cars or is there a different way of doing things? So how do we invest in public transports and better mobility solutions for cities and for society as a whole? That means we don't need to do a large scale where we can just replace the way we used to do things with something that we think might be net zero but isn't. So those are the really big questions here. And as we move into that, if we're going to reinvent mobility, we need more access to data. So this brings us back, it all comes back to the data at some point of how do we justify the financial investments? And then as we're trying to operationalize them, how do we best use all of this you know, uh, data that's flowing around to maximize efficiency? So you know, broad in broad terms, we need to double the amount of renewable energy in the UK and we need to double our energy efficiency in the next 10 to 20 years. It's a big ask. Yeah, I would just... Uh... Uh, I'm just going to say, um, Gavin, that yeah, this this whole uh, replacing cars with 
with with an electric car, it, you know, might not be the answer, right? I mean, the cars they take up a huge space <laughs> on the street where a tree could be, or a, you know, or some I don't know cafe could be, or some or, or somebody's uh, living space, right? I've listened to some podcasts about uh, micro mobility, you know, and that I think that's that's really interesting, right? Which is you know greener and smaller. But um, Gavin, what about this? What about data? And Steve, what about this? Is there some low-hanging fruit? I'm talking about thinking about the in the open banking scope, right? Or the in the open banking context, you know, what can we ask banks to do in terms of open data or semi-open data? I mean, you mentioned that it's difficult to expose scope three because that means exposing. I mean, if everyone exposes their scope one, scope two right, then companies themselves could look at the scope one and two of their suppliers and thus work out their scope three. So they wouldn't have to necessarily uh, show their suppliers unless they're audited or something like that. Does does it it work like that? So maybe I could just jump in quickly before uh, Gavin, so you can talk about the details. But but just as an example of one of the challenges where I think the data can come in. So if you, if you look at, once again, back, back to the Canadian side, a lot of the oil and gas producers have been focusing on reducing um, their emissions per barrel. Um, and of course, that's, that's good and, and they should be doing that. The, the problem is that over 80% of the emissions come from actually burning that oil. So if you're reducing the emissions per barrel, that's good. But if you're increasing your production by 150%, <laughs> then it doesn't really have any carbon savings at all. You're actually boosting your, your carbon emission. And so the, the best way to get the, the emissions of a barrel to zero is to not produce it in the first place. Well, exactly, exactly. But that's, that, that's not really what their, their, their message is. But this, this is where I think it circles back to what you and Simon were just saying about the mobility piece and maybe tying it back to COP. So when you look at one of the outcomes there in, in that agreement around the finance for climate adaptation. This is, a, I think, very interesting when we look at sort of the choice of words because adaptation is often interpreted to mean how do we protect what we have and maintain what we have in the face of change? But I think what Simon and Gavin were getting at is what if the way things are now is actually not working very well, whether it's around justice, whether it's about air quality, whether it's about city design or all those kind of things. And is this actually an opportunity to do things differently? So I think from, from, a, from a data side, at least certainly having that transparency about where are these funds flowing to and in what direction. And, and back to the, the, the justice side, for me, one of the key elements is then how does that allow citizens to be able to help participate in some of these kind of conversations? Because um, I, th- I think we really run a risk. And when we look at things like uh, the Trump election, uh, at uh, Brexit, at the Gilets Jaunes uh, protests in France, when people feel that decisions are being made for them, when they feel like they're being left behind, that they're losing a way of life, and it doesn't matter whether that's a true fact or not, but when that belief is there, we have very serious political consequences. So I think the, the data and the transparency of showing what's actually happening can help to mitigate that and hopefully allow people to be part of making decisions that are, that are going to affect them. And as Gavin mentioned, this is a real tension because we have this real need to drive things quickly. We, we really can't spend another 25 years having focus groups about what we want to do. And we really need to 
engage people in this conversation. So I don't have the magical solution for that, but I do think the openness, the transparency, helping people understand what's happening and the implications of that can really help to to bring those uh, conversations together. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to come on to that. I mean, before I do, I, I will come back to you, Gavin, but this idea of, of bringing the con- consumers along, um, because as you said, Steve, there is a very... Um, uh, real uh, problem that they could be left behind, and and Gavin, I know you mentioned this kind of making sure that any kind of transition is a, is a just one. So I think that's something we can explore. But Gavin, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of respond to what Simon and Steve were, were just saying there before we before we do that. Yeah, sure. So I think you know this this, this is where the 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 idea that we can just make it everything open data d- doesn't work um, because. To Simon's example there, if you're looking at your scope three and you're looking at supply chain, if you're buying, um, I don't know, let, let, let's say a, a, a thousand tons of steel from a supplier, in order to know what the scope three component of that is, there's, there's broadly two ways of doing it. In your example, Simon, if, if well, if we knew what the scope one and two was for that supplier, we might be able to work out what ours. Well, we'd need to know then what percentage our purchase was of their entire output. Picture I'd like to just reverse back out and, and bring our um, thinking around is that there's multiple levers here. There's levers coming from the financial community around large-scale investment, systemic investment in our global infrastructure. There's levers coming from policy. There's levers coming from consumers, you know, and, and one of my calls to action to individuals is, you know, call up your pension provider and ask them what their net zero plan is and how are they going to prove it? How are they incentivizing their leadership teams? So that's the kind of consumer pressures coming as well. Now, in all of these cases, what we find is at some point someone says, oh, I need access to X, Y, or Z data. And there are, so it's a many to many problem. So we need to build a web of net zero data. Uh, and that requires open standards. It requires open frameworks. It requires the kind of liability framework and uh, consent management frameworks that open banking have paved the way for. Uh, and, and what we can do now is build on that blueprint to enable interoperability at scale. But it's going to require the intervention from regulators. It's going to require the buy-in and, and engagement from the commercial sector, and it's going to require consumer pressure to make it all happen. So we, the thing is, we've got all of those things coming. The question is, can we do it quickly? Let's talk then more about the consumers in, in all of this. So, um, Steve, you, you mentioned earlier about how we bring consumers along um, and that people don't get left behind in this conversation. I mean, something, um, so so in open banking, I suppose what I've seen over the past few months is um, kind of banking apps, bringing in, uh, using open banking, bringing in this technology that allows basically consumers to see exactly their kind of carbon footprint based on on their spending through their banking app, for example. I mean, is, is that uh, kind of fintech, is that bringing consumers along? Does it end up, I'm wondering if it ends up kind of, putting the onus on on the consumer, um, uh, their own carbon footprint, and perhaps forgetting um, 
or distracting them from the fact that maybe we need more um, input from a kind of government and industry-wide level to to keep pressure on on as you said pension funds and and you know these oil and gas companies. So I'm I'm wondering. Um, I know there's kind of a few questions in there that I've brought up, but um, Steve, perhaps I can come to you first on this about about the consumer where they fit into this all really. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there, are, there are a few questions there. I mean, I think to Gavin's point, yes, the consumer pressure definitely has a role. Uh, but I think that sort of giving that access, the fintech, having the carbon footprint, I think it'll be really interesting to see what impact that actually has, because historically, most uh, consumer research has shown that consumers do express a strong preference for buying green products, but that, is, that does not translate to actual purchasing behavior is that people actually end up buying what, what's cheaper. So, but this, this does, I think, can really point to the systemic nature. And, and it is a problem when we offload the responsibility of that to the consumer. So lo- looking at uh, London as an example, uh, as a city that's notoriously known for incredibly high housing prices. So if someone is, uh, has a job in London, they can't, unless depending on what kind of job they have, they can't afford to live there. So they may have to live even beyond the reach of where the where the underground goes. So maybe they need a car and they need it and there's no local transport there. So they need another car to ferry their kids around to to football practice and so on. So that app and that data would show that they are actually having a very high carbon footprint. And, and that's true is they have two fossil fuel vehicles. But that's not necessarily because they're choosing to be bad people or, or they're a bad environmentalist. There are structural issues in terms of infrastructure investment and public transport and, and housing costs and so on. So while that data may not necessarily bring people along, I think what it can do is help people understand the interrelationships between these things, because these systems are complex and interdependent. Um, but we don't want to just sort of blame people and say you're a bad environmentalist because you have two cars. So there, there may be some benefit with, with that. Um, so, Simon, uh, let's bring you in on some of the points that Steve there made about consumers and perhaps how some of these kind of fintech apps and developments can actually kind of maybe maybe it can include them in the conversation and and actually make them aware of, as you, Steve, said these some of these kind of bigger structural issues really um simon i'm interested to hear from you on this yeah so i guess gamification is a technique that's been used right uh, in savings and and so on especially for for, for for younger people so maybe we can you know bring you know, some net zero thinking into gamification you know like everybody has their kind of Um, things that they are prepared to do and things that they're less prepared to do yeah we just we just need to raise the raise the noise about it right as Greta Thunberg says you know you've got to communicate about it educate yourself so uh, when I was in London recently at actually at the open banking expert there were a number of uh, startups there that were working in this net zero play as it were I'm sure there'll be innovation coming from that direction. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, look, well, um, as you said there, it's all about perhaps, uh, or in Greta Thunberg's words, raising the noise. And I think um, it's been a really interesting discussion today between the three of you. So thank you for joining me on the podcast and for all your input. I mean, I know we probably could have talked for another few hours. This We've already had quite a, a wide ranging discussion, but um, hopefully that's brought up some interesting kind of 
points for people and and um yeah just to thank you thank you all for your time again yeah thanks great to be here yeah good to be here I'd just like to thank again all three of my guests today, Gavin, Simon and Steve, for that really fascinating discussion. I know it ended up being really wide ranging, but hopefully uh, we brought it back to open banking. And I think we've all learned quite a bit there. So thanks to them. Thank you for listening, of course, to listen to other episodes in our Open Banking Expo Unplugged podcast series. Just go to the on-demand section of openbankingexpo.com where you can watch back recent live panel debates on demand. Goodbye for now.